everybody, Chris Harry with you on a new episode of Chargers Weekly. A bit later, NFL columnist and new author Bob Glauber joins me. We discuss his new book, Guts and Genius. It details the coaching careers of Bill Walsh, Bill Parcells, and Joe Gibbs, and there are some unique Chargers ties that may surprise you. But first, Rob Rang of NFLDraftScout.com joins me for some early draft talk, plus potential options for the Chargers at number 28 overall. All right, my first guest is Rob Rang of NFLDraftScout.com. And Rob is a friend of the program. We actually did this a year ago, right before the Combine. Time flies, Rob. How are you, man? I'm doing well. I'm sure a year ago I picked out Derwin James and made me laugh until <laughs> You know what? I, I got to check the tape, but I don't doubt it for a second because Derwin was a big name going into the Combine. But, hey, draft season is in full swing. We're just coming off Senior Bowl week. What were your main takeaways from the week in Mobile? You know, the big takeaway was that the the defensive line, I thought, played up to expectation. I I certainly expected them to come in and be the dominant group, Um, and so I was very pleased with their talent, but I was also very impressed with the the offensive line uh, talent that that, that showed through, especially along the offensive tackle position. That was a uh, a pleasant surprise. And then I thought the other position groups that really stood out would be wide receiver, tight end and then in the defensive backfield. But unfortunately, I had some expect or I had some uh some concerns about the quarterback class and, and that proved itself out as well as traditional inside linebacker running back groups. If you're looking for those two uh, those couple of positions, then you may want to look at the underclassmen. Let's dig into these quarterbacks because I think I read that Drew Locke is your top senior quarterback. Uh when you factor in these underclassmen Dwayne Haskins, especially Kyler Murray, is Locke still your your top quarterback? How do you see these guys? Well, I have Dwayne Haskins from Ohio State as the as the top rated quarterback in this draft class. Uh, he's my you know obviously he's an underclassman, um, but he is my my top rated player. And then I would say Daniel Jones from um, from uh, from Duke is very much in that mix as well. Kyler Murray from Oklahoma is is dynamic, but you better be willing to to cater your offense to what he does best. Obviously, as a, as a dual threat passer, and there's only so many NFL teams who are going to be willing to do that. Drew Locke, as you said, has been my top-rated senior quarterback prospect throughout this entire year, uh, throughout the entire process. He, I still have some concerns about him in, in terms of just his ability to, to read defenses quickly, articulate uh, the play at the line of scrimmage. Um, that is just something that he has struggled with uh, during his time at Missouri as well as during the senior bowl itself. In terms of just a pure thrower, Beautiful stroke, great velocity, great accuracy. He's everything I'm looking for in that regard. Daniel Jones, I think, has a chance to be the first quarterback off the board. I, my biggest concern about him is just pure velocity. I see him as more of a West Coast offense type of quarterback, uh, a little bit more in the Nick Foles, Matt Schaub type, a, a guy who can be a starter for you. But, again, you have to have some reservations about what type of, uh, what type of offense that he can be most successful in. And then Dwayne Haskins, he is my top-rated quarterback, but I should say this, that uh, in comparison to last year, where we saw five quarterbacks go off the board in the first round, I would have Dwayne Haskins ranked fourth uh, on that group, behind Sam Darnold, behind Baker Mayfield and Josh Rosen. Very interesting. And, you know, my next question was about the other quarterbacks in Mobile, Will Greer, Jared Stidham. Where do you see those guys fitting into this equation? And are they quarterbacks that you could eventually see as starters? Are there developmental guys here? I'm curious to see what this quarterback position looks like, not only in the first round, but also in the second, third, fourth rounds. 
Yeah, I think the most of the quarterbacks that we did see in Mobile this year are going to be drafted on day two and day three. Uh, you know, with as I mentioned before, with, with Drew Locke and, and Daniel Jones, I expect them to be the first two passers uh, from this year's Senior Bowl to be selected. And I think that they are eventual starters in the NFL, although I do not necessarily believe that they can come into the NFL and be immediate starters. Uh, with, with Jarrett Stidham, he would be the quarterback that was in the Senior Bowl that I believe should be selected next. And I I do believe that he has future starter potential. He has the, the velocity. He has the touch. He has the ability to read defenses. He showed his ability to transition from Gus Malzahn's offense, uh, which is a little bit more of a college, you know, some would say gimmicky type of a scheme uh, in, in comparison to more of a pro-style attack. And I really thought that Stidham performed very well throughout the week of practice. And then during the game itself showed some things that, that you're looking for. Uh, at the same time, again, I don't believe that he necessarily is going and be able to walk into the NFL and, and be a starter immediately. Uh, with Will Greer, the same reservations that I had about him on tape, I, I thought uh, showed itself through the Senior Bowl in that and it seems to me that he's a little bit reliant on his wide receivers making plays for them. I see decent accuracy, passable accuracy, but not the elite accuracy, not the ability to put the ball wherever he wants and really lead his wide receiver to the promised land. Uh, and so, again, I, I view uh, whether it be Will Greer, whether it be uh, Minshew, Gardner Minshew, excuse me, from Washington State, uh, you know, even Tyree Jackson, who has all the talent in the world, but it's a raw prospect. And to me, it's one of the misnomers about this whole NFL draft process is this idea that you can take a young quarterback and develop him. For a player like Tyree Jackson, who has the talent that he has, he needs to be playing. He needs action on the field. You know, in the NFL, he's just not going to get that. So I think that he could be drafted late. Uh, I certainly love the upside, but I think we're talking about a true pros- project in Tyree Jackson. A name you mentioned earlier, Heisman Trophy winner, Kyler Murray. I think he's a fascinating conversation, Rob. He doesn't have that prototypical size and the height that you're looking for as an NFL quarterback. But in today's league, how much does that matter? And can you envision a team falling in love with him, maybe top half of the first round? I can. Absolutely. I mean, if you wanted to win one game, I think that, that Kyler Murray might be your guy. I mean, just because, you know, he is such a dynamic athlete. He has shown uh, not only the, you know, the, the athletic ability to, to buy time in the pocket, to, uh, to beat defenses with his feet in terms of being a scrambler, but he has a legitimate arm. There, there's no question about pure arm strength, and, and he shows the ability to kind of put the ball just about wherever he wants it in terms of throwing the ball with, with velocity, in terms of throwing the ball with, with, with touch. Uh, he shows the ability to be able to read defenses and uh, change his plan during the play rather than just relying on his pre-snap read. So a lot of things to be excited about, but as you mentioned, the, the size re- restrictions are, are certainly something that the teams are going to have to uh, to be concerned about. Uh, he's you know listed at 5'11 and 195 pounds. It's going to be interesting to see if he actually weighs in that big. Um, you know, and so that, that's the concern I have about him is that obviously it's a much longer NFL season? Is he he going to be durable enough to hold up um, throughout the course of the season? I think that he is going to go in the first round. At the same time, I would be very nervous if I was the head coach of that team because clearly you have a quarterback who is, you know, you have some concerns about durability. And then again, you have to cater your offense to what Kyler Murray does best. Um, And not everybody else on on the field may necessarily feel that's the right move. 
When you look at this draft as a whole, Rob, this is a defensive lineman draft. It's it's D lineman heavy, and frankly, there's some O linemen that you can envision as starters in 2019 very quickly as well. Who tops the list for you in those categories, D line and O line? Well, I think for me, then you just look at the, there's just so many dominant defensive linemen this year, and so uh, my personal top rated prospect would be Nick Bosa and Quentin Williams. Uh, obviously, Bosa. The Chargers fans are going to be very familiar with the Bosa family. Oh, yeah, we know about um, the Bosas. I, I, <laughs> exactly. And, and so, so Nick, to me, is a carbon copy of his, of his older brother, Joey. And, and by that, I mean that he is, he's a, a Pro Bowl caliber edge rusher uh, that can just do so many different things for you. Quinn Williams, the, the big defensive tackle from Alabama, for my money, was the best player in college football this last year, bar none. Just absolutely dominant at the point of attack. Reminded me a little bit of Indomitian Sue in that the way he just was able to dominate players at the collegiate level. Um, I have some reservations about him because we're talking about essentially a one-year superstar um, and that and is obviously surrounded by a great deal of talent at Alabama. But in terms of just watching him, uh, his ability to just dominate elite competition in the SEC uh, just kind of speaks for itself, uh, whether it be Cleveland Farrell uh, from Clemson, um, you know, Ed Oliver from Houston, I and mean, we can go on and on, Rashawn Gary from Michigan. I think we could see at least half of the players selected in the top 10 and wind up being defensive linemen, and that's just something that, that we very rarely see. On the offensive side of the ball, uh, Jonah Williams, the offensive tackle from Alabama, has been my top-rated tackle this entire process, and, and so I, I've seen nothing on tape um, you know, to, to suggest that that should change. Where I was really intrigued was going to the Senior Bowl and seeing a couple of other offensive tackles that I view as more second- to third-round players really perform brilliantly. Um, so I would mention Caleb McGarry from Washington, Andre Dillard from Washington State, um, and, and then from, from Kansas State, Dalton Reisner, I thought, had probably the best week of practice of any player at the Senior Bowl. Um, and, and so those are three guys who I think had a chance to sneak into that late portion of the first round. And while they may not be flashy guys, as you said, I think that they had a chance to come in and contribute immediately. And at the offensive tackle position, that's rare. And that's why I think those guys are going to wind up going earlier than perhaps some are suggesting. You know, going into the Senior Bowl, Rob, I heard a lot about Dillard from Washington State and Reisner as well. And the thing about Reisner is his positional versatility, right? He could play across the line. He really can. That's one of the things that, that's so fun about Reisner is the fact that he played at right tackle. He played at center. Um, he's moved inside and played guard a little bit. I mean, he is just very versatile. Uh, and then when you, when you speak to him, you can just kind of hear his intelligence. You can hear his passion. Um, and then so it, it, it's, um, you know, it's the same thing that you see on tape. It's just that consistency. And so it just makes it a much easier much easier projection to the NFL because um, he not only has the athletic ability, but he has the, the work ethic, all the intangibles uh, that you're looking for. And then Andre Dillard, I mean, just his, uh, you know, living in the, the greater Pacific Northwest area myself, I've had an opportunity to watch uh, Dillard and, and other Washington State Cougars uh, offensive linemen wind up going into the NFL and, and being more successful than a lot of people assume for a team that plays that, that so-called air raid offense. Dillard has very good knee bend and very light feet and that combination allows him to move very fluidly left to right in the shuffle in pass protection he's not quite as physical
physical at the point of attack in terms of a run blocker as, say, Caleb McGarry again from Washington or Dalton Reisner. But at the same time, if you're looking for a pass protector, then I think Andre Diller has a chance to be one of the very first left tackles drafted this year and, again, quite possibly a first-round pick. I want to stop you at a name that you mentioned on the D-line, and that's Ed Oliver. And during the season, I heard so much about Houston's Ed Oliver and how he was going to be a top pick, maybe top three, top five. Now you're seeing him in mocks going in the the mid-first round. I saw one late in the first round. I know you had a mock draft about a month ago. You had him at number three overall. Um, what's What's the deal with Ed Oliver, and why are there so many varying opinions, it seems like? Well, I think for one, it's the, the, the questions about how he's going to measure up. Um, you know, there, there's some talk out there that, you know, do you try and make him a defensive end? Do you try and make him an off-ball linebacker? Just because there, there's concerns he's going to be 6'2", 280 pounds. And, and I would argue that there's a, there's a defensive lineman that plays across town from you guys uh, in Aaron Donald, who was not quite as big as people wanted. Yeah, he's um, pretty good. Because of <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Because of his extraordinary quickness, he does have terrific power. Uh, you know, he is just, you know, kind of a one in a million type of a player. And it's, it's presumptuous to compare Ed Oliver, obviously, as a college player to, you know, the reigning defensive MVP. But at the same time, that's the type of disruptive ability I see with Aaron Don- or excuse me, with uh, Ed Oliver. And so I still believe that he is a top 10, top 15 caliber player. I think that he is ultimately going to be drafted as such as long as he is as impressive in the interview process is I think that he will be. And I, I've spoken to a lot of scouts about the, 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 the kind of dust up with, with his head coach at Houston, Major Applewhite. And I think that the, the, the perception I've got is that's kind of much ado about nothing. This was a, this was a head coach who was trying to, to keep his Houston Cougars focused on the field. And then Oliver, who, you know, was, of course, wasn't playing in that particular game and it, it ended up being a much bigger issue than it really was. So I still think that Ed Oliver is among the, the best players, uh, bar none, in this entire draft class. And I think that when he goes into the NFL, we're going to see that play out. Rob, when you look at the Chargers, they're going to draft at number 28 overall in the first round. And it's a really interesting position because there could be scenarios in which a really good defensive lineman or an offensive lineman is there uh, because there's a surplus at that position. And maybe you, you pick from that, that bunch Or perhaps on the other side of the coin, there's a lot of talent that gets pushed to them, like a linebacker or a corner uh, that's too good to pass up. So at 28 overall, how do you view the Chargers and what they could possibly do with that position? Well, I'm, I'm going to give you the boring answer and just say best player available. And I think that you are looking for the best player available because if you try and pigeonhole yourself um, too much, then then I think that that's you know that that's never going to work out for you in the long run. I think this is a team that, that's built to win right now, and so if you can find a player who's going to be able to make an immediate impact the way that Derwin James did, obviously fall into their lap a year ago, then you might be able to really take advantage of that. And I think that this sets up beautifully for the Chargers because obviously you have a you know an elite quarterback already on you know, as, your, as your starter. Maybe you want to find somebody uh, you know, to compete for a developmental thing, but you're not going to be taking that in the first round, at least not likely, in my opinion. Um, and then the same thing along the, uh, the, the defensive line. Because you already have the pass rushers in place, let some of those other teams take some of those pass rushers and allow some of those other cornerbacks, those offensive tackles, that might be able to slide down and be able to help the Chargers a little bit more quickly. Uh, and so I, I think that this sets up very well for the Chargers, and 
I do see that there's a, a lot of talented players, especially along the offensive line, in at corner, as well as a safety that might be able to slide down that are really good football players. Um, and, and so that, uh, that, that some clubs out there may be viewing players, uh, say like uh, uh, Deontay Thompson, the free safety Alabama. Obviously, that's not a, free safety is not a huge concern for the Chargers specifically, but that's a player who, in my opinion, should go in the top 15. I think he has a chance to slide outside the top 20 just because there's going to be so many other clubs out there who are going to be rolling the dice early on, these defensive linemen and quarterbacks. Quickly on the linebacker position, it's a position that's been talked about here in Los Angeles. They were just decimated by injuries. Kaiser White, who won the starting job as a rookie, got hurt. Denzel Perryman got hurt. Jatavis Brown got hurt. I know it's not super deep at linebacker in this draft, but who, who are a few names that could be available at the end of the first? Well, Devin White would be the one I definitely would start off with from LSU. I mean, he's the reigning Buckus Award winner and well-deserved. He could have won it uh, two years ago when Roquan Smith from Georgia obviously wound up going to Chicago Bears early in the first round uh, a year ago. He won it, wound up winning it. Devin White, to me, is just kind of, he's one of those guys who is just, uh, you know, his, his compact build and his instincts uh, and his just physicality is really what stands out when watching him on tape. He just has, you know, we, we talk about this with running backs a lot, but I think it's also important a linebacker that, con- that balance through contact. He runs through would-be blockers and is able to shed them in the hole and still be able to make the, the tackle. He has enough speed to get sideline to sideline. Um, and so, I, to me, he, he is the one inside linebacker in this draft class who deserves to be selected in the first round. I think he'd be a terrific fit uh, for the Chargers, not only because of what he brings to the table as a football player, but I know that from having covered the, the Chargers for so many years, how much value they place in the intangibles. And Is he a good person on and off the field? Devin White has high ranks in that regard. That's why I think that he'd be a spectacular fit for the Chargers. Awesome. Awesome insight. Rob, let's end on this. The Chargers got big-time contributions from their 2018 class. I mentioned Kaiser White. He got hurt, but he did win that starting job at linebacker early in the year. Justin Jones played a lot this year on the D-line. Uchenna Nuosu played a lot at uh, linebacker and uh, coming off the edge. And then, of course, Sterwin James, first-team All-Pro. They drafted him number 17 overall. Just your thoughts on how these guys performed this year versus how you viewed them going into the, the draft last year. Well, I, I was I was stunned, like a lot of people, when Derwin James is still on the board, number seventeen overall. Um, and so I think that, that it makes your draft a lot easier when you draft an All Pro in the first round. But as, as you said, I mean, the, the Chargers got uh, terrific production throughout their entire draft class. I mean, even their seventh round pick. Now, a lot of people out there, um, you know, are going to get a, a starting caliber player. Obviously, you have a superstar in Melvin Gordon. But when Melvin Gordon went down, you have Justin Jackson come in and and still be a productive runner for you. You. To me, that's just a testament to the, the, the quality of scouting that the Chargers are doing uh, and, and how that's marrying in with their coaching staff. And that, to me, is really where the good teams separate themselves is when they can kind of have the scouts and the coaches truly come together and be able to pick out the players that, that fit with their system. That's not something that a lot of clubs are able to do. I think the Chargers proved that they could do that a year ago, and that's one of the reasons why I believe that they are set up again to, to win the 2019 draft as well. Rob, this was excellent. I can't thank you enough for your time. Where can people find your work? I know that there's probably a new mock draft coming up. I, I saw the one you did. I think it was New Year's Eve. There's got to be a 3.0 coming soon, I imagine. 
Oh, yeah, there certainly will be. Uh, you can always find our information at NFLDraftScout.com. And, uh, you know, and to be completely honest, not to call myself out too much, but you may see a lack of updates for, for another week or so because we are just so hard. We're, we're working so hard to, uh, to finish up the Lindy's NFL Draft magazine. And so we are going to have hundreds of player profiles, those strengths and weaknesses and player comparisons that everybody loves uh, to, to be reading through as the draft unfold. We are working on that as we speak, um, basically finishing that up. That this should be on newsstands right around combine time. And so that's where our focus has been on right now because there's a lot of time to do the mock drafts and all that kind of stuff. We certainly want to look forward to the, to the combine and the process and all that. But in terms, of prof- in terms of rankings, in terms of mock drafts, in terms of uh, free profiles that people can download or read in magazine form, NFLDraftScout.com and Lindy's NFL Draft Magazine is the place to be. I'll be scooping that magazine up right before Indianapolis, Rob. Awesome stuff. I'll see you at the combine, my man. I'll see you soon. Sounds great. Thanks for having me as always. All right, joining me now is longtime Newsday NFL columnist Bob Glauber. He's a president of the Pro Football Writers of America and the author of a fascinating new book. It's called Guts and Genius, the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the NFL in the 80s. Bob, congrats on the early success with the book. I really appreciate you joining us, sir. Well, thanks very much, Chris, for having me. I absolutely adored writing it. I covered a lot of those games that I wrote about in the book, and it was a really, really special time in the NFL. Well, you know what? I know you're in Atlanta, too. I want to get into the Super Bowl matchup later, but let's start with the book. As I said, it's a fantastic read or listen. For me, I purchased it on Audible, so I've been listening to it the last couple of weeks. And what it is, it details the coaching careers of Bill Walsh, Bill Parcells, and Joe Gibbs. I know you interviewed 150 people for it, Bob. What was your motivation for writing the book? Well, you know, I always liked that period of football and, you know, I, I kind of am interested in, in football history, just having covered it for a long time. And, and that area in particular intrigued me because the game, so many great players and so many great coaches and those three kind of rose above everybody. I, I mean, I really do think that the eighties and early nineties were a golden era of football in a lot of ways, you know, it's pre free agency. You knew who your teams were going to be. You knew who your coaches were, you knew who the players were and, generally knew your quarterback was. And I think that the the quality of play in that decade was just fantastic. And the the league had really progressed. You know, fifties were a very, very good, unique decade and kind of brought the NFL into the forefront. Sixties got back with Lombardi seventies. You know, you had the great Cowboys, Steelers, uh, Raiders matchups. And and then in the eighties, kind of the game itself became perfected in a lot of ways by the coaching and those three coaches in particular, really had it going and, and, and kind of changed the trajectory of the NFL to, to kind of where it is today. Eight Super Bowls between the three of those coaches. Bob, what did you learn during this project that may have surprised you about a Walsh or a Parcells or a Gibbs that maybe you didn't know going into it? Well, you know, I covered a lot of Parcells and Gibbs, so I, I kind of knew there was a lot of just you know, kind of institutional knowledge, if you will, about them, just having, having been around them. But I did learn a lot from them kind of about their insecurities, especially early on in their careers. that really drove them. And um, they were very open about that. Now, Walsh, obviously, a bit trickier to, uh, to kind of get into because he's not with us. But in a lot of ways, I learned more about him through the people that he knew best who were willing to share their experiences with Bill Walsh. 
he was a highly complicated individual, a guy who had mood swings that were really difficult for him and kind of drove him out of the game. And it, it was that intense, that difficult. For him. And he just, he really had a, a real struggle coming up and getting the opportunity to coach took a lot of things personally, and it really impacted his life in good and bad ways. You know, the bad way was it really drove him out of the game because he kind of burned out from the, uh, the success that he did have and that he tried to continue to achieve. And, you know, the, the, the bad part was, um, you know, that, that struggle. The good part was he, he created this ching tree and this legacy that continues today. I, I was just fascinated to see how many coaches are related somehow uh, to Bill Walsh. And, and it happened because he was passed over by Paul Brown in 1976 to be the Bengals head coach. And if you're a Bengals fan and you hear that Bill Walsh would have been perfectly content to spend the rest of his career in Cincinnati, you'd say, oh, he's to kill me now because he would have. He would have been totally willing to be the Bengals coach for a long, long time. It didn't work out, but but he promised himself he was going to help whatever coach that he worked with and, and you know, worked for him, uh, unlike Paul Brown did for him. And um, it turned out to be the greatest thing for the NFL coaching community. And, Bob, he was so beat up about that. And, you know, one of the things in this book, I think Chargers fans will appreciate, there are some major connections to the Chargers in this book. We talk about Bill Walsh being the Chargers offensive coordinator in 1976, along with Dan Fouts being the quarterback. I don't think people realize that the West Coast offense kind of took a stop with the Chargers before it made its way to the 49ers. That's right. That's right. And, you know, Dan Fouts, when we spoke about uh, Bill Walsh, he shook his head as if it was yesterday because he loved having Bill Walsh as his offensive coordinator. Absolutely loved him. He says, you know, I was in danger of being traded or even released until Walsh came into my life. And I'm listening to him. I'm like, whoa. I mean, I, j- I just don't know this kind of stuff. And he, and he kind of details what Bill Walsh did for him, worked on his footwork, really took apart the mechanics of his, of his game and put them back together again and really put Dan Fouts on the trajectory that he became a Hall of Famer on. And uh, I, I did not know that. And he was absolutely devastated when Bill Walsh told him before the final game of that season that they were going to play the Raiders to leave to become the, the, you know, the head coach at Stanford. And Fouts said, I had one of the worst games I ever had against the Raiders to close out that season because I was so upset that I was going to be without Bill Walsh. It turned out okay because his next offensive coordinator was, was Joe Gibbs. Could you imagine that? Having two straight offensive coordinators named Bill Walsh and Joe Gibbs in your life. And they had a lot to do with Dan Fouts turning his career around and becoming a Hall of Famer. Yeah, that was my next point, is the the fact that Dan Fouts had offensive coordinators named Walsh and Gibbs, and he probably had his best two seasons in his career when Gibbs was the OC. And of course, Joe Gibbs had those Eric Coriel influences that he took to Washington, but it didn't start that way. He had to adjust on the fly. And one of the things about Joe Gibbs I was talking to you about offline, Bob, is you know this is a guy who won three Super Bowls, three different starting quarterbacks, and yet, I don't see a lot written about him. You know, maybe he doesn't have the coaching tree that a Parcells or a Walsh has. But why do you think that not much has been written about Joe Gibbs after all he did in the 80s? I really don't know why he's not more of a, you know, of a talked about figure. And, I, and I've come across a lot of people in the industry 
who believe that Joe Gibbs is a completely underrated coach. Totally agree with that. He just does not get the credit that a, a three-time Super Bowl championship coach deserves. And, and not only three-time Super Bowl champion, but did it in two strike seasons and did it with three quarterbacks, none of whom was, was close to the Hall of Fame. Now, all great coaches, all Hall of Fame coaches, you just look at them. They all had great quarterbacks. You know, Montana was with Bill Walsh. Um, you know, had Roger Staubach, Terry and Chuck Noel. That was a, a team there. And Joe Gibbs had none of that. Yet he won three Super Bowls with this magnificent coaching. And I, I think you can argue that just from a pure coaching standpoint, I'm not talking about coaching tree, I'm not talking about legacy, I'm not talking about you know what he left behind, but just pure coach who can make game in-game adjustments, Joe Gibbs has really got to be up there. And I'm talking about in the class of Belichick, in the class of uh, Walsh, anyone, anyone you want to put up there, Joe Gibbs, you know, should, should be mentioned in it because he was brilliant. One of the greatest strategists of all time. Yeah, I remember that 91 season growing up as a kid going to RFK and the, the year they went 14 and two, avenged their two losses to the Eagles and Cowboys and just ran through the playoffs. And again, it was it was just a, a, a group of players that. You know, you're not going to point to a ton of Hall of Famers on that team. You had a, a quarterback in Mark Rippon. You had the posse. You had a, a couple of uh, Hall of Fame offensive linemen. But for him to sustain that success through three different teams is, is pretty remarkable. It really is remarkable. And he, I think he, as well as any coach, was able to kind of mix and match players and get kind of get a feel for what his players what they couldn't do, and he wouldn't put them in bad positions. And that's that's the beauty of Joe Gibbs. He was a great, you know, he was like a puzzle maker, and he knew which pieces fit. And you know, you go back to that first year. Joe Gibbs literally was afraid of being the first coach in NFL history who'd be fired before ever winning one game. He he literally was afraid that Jack Ken Cook was going to fire him early in the 1981 season when he went 0 and 5. And Jack Ken Cook was not close to doing that, but but Gibbs was very nervous about it. But what he had to do, he gutted, and he just took apart his offense. Now, he, he installs the entire offense through training camp, through the first five games. It is the Coriel offense, but it's just not working in the NFC East, which is a very defensive-oriented conference uh, division, You know, a lot of running games. So he, he completely junks it after five games and goes to a running attack, and he turns it around. And he never kind of tried to force it. You know, a lot of coaches, you know, they're, they're married to their systems. They have to make it work their way. And Walsh was a guy who, who, who did that to, to a large degree. He didn't really change, and he, and he survived with it, and he, and he thrived with it. But, but Gibbs realized that, yeah, I just can't keep doing this because it's not working. And once he did go to that ground-oriented approach, the hogs were born, and, you know, Riggins became a star, and the guy started winning Super Bowls within a year. Bob, what I think is perhaps – most intriguing about these three coaches is that for as much success as they had, they all had failures at the beginning of their coaching careers. We talk about Joe Gibbs. You said it. He started 0-5, thought he was going to be fired before he was going to win a game. Bill Walsh was 2-14 and his first year, 8-24 and his first two seasons. Bill Parcells, 3-12-1 and his first season. And I just look at the league today and the pressure on coaches, social media. There, there's just more scrutiny on coaches. And Coach Lynn even said it at the end of the season when they asked him about some of these coaches being fired. He said, I, I question whether some of the, the Hall of Fame greats 
in this league would be able to survive in, in 2018 in the NFL? It's a very good point. And I think you would really be, it would be very interesting to see if Gibbs could survive. And I, t- and I, and I leave parcels out of that equation because it's 1983. It's not nearly the scrutiny that there is now, but he was going to be fired. They had decided that it was too big for him. He went three twelve and one had a lot of injuries that year, really kind of changed his personality and they thought it was beyond him. And, you know, they tried to get Howard Schnellerberger to leave Miami and he couldn't get out of his contract. He eventually did, but he couldn't come to the job and they gave Parcells another chance, uh, almost fault. So, I mean, even then he was, he was ready to be fired, but you know, it was a real turnaround year, 1984. And even early in the season, there were a couple of moments where they were teetering, but they did turn it around. They went to the playoffs. They faced Bill Walsh's 49ers and Walsh, you know, beat them that year, but realized, you know, this, this is definitely a team, you know, within two years, they won their first Super Bowl. So uh, you're right uh, that, you know, the controversy and the scrutiny, um, you wonder, and Anthony Lynn brings up a totally good point that you wonder if, if would be hall of fame coaches would ever get that chance uh, in today's NFL, because it's just so, there's such a quick hook uh, for coaches who don't perform well in a given season. Speaking of Coach Lynn, he probably has the most unique coaching tree because Bill Walsh identified him as a head coach. He worked under Bill Parcells during his time in Dallas. Mike Shanahan gave him his first opportunity as a coach in this league. Uh, and I know you probably got to, to know Coach Lynn quite a bit in your time in New York. Uh, just your, your thoughts on his early success in the league and, and how that coaching tree has shaped him. Yeah, that coaching tree really has shaped him quite quite well and quite uniquely, like you said, because I don't really know of any other coach that had that kind of crossover between the Walsh tree and the Parcells tree. Lynn is a, is a perfect example of that. And he, you know, he paid his dues. He, he earned it. Um, I remember talking to Anthony Lynn just about the, the time that he played for the 49ers. Now, at this point, Bill Walsh was the general manager and he was a front office guy, but, but Lynn played and, and, and Walsh went up to him in the locker room one day and said, it's just something about you. I think you can coach. And Lynn was looked at him like, wow, he was, he was stunned. You know, he was flattered um, that Bill Walsh is coming up to him, but he was really stunned. And he went on that track. He went to Bill Walsh had a minority fellowship program that Anthony Lynn participated in. And he would meet, he would meet a couple of other coaches along the way and former 49er teammates. And Lynn would say, yeah, one day Walsh came up to me. He says, I could coach. The other guy would say the same to me. (laughs) And and he got a kick out of it. But but Walsh had a very intriguing and very unique way of looking at would-be coaches, identifying them early and kind of putting them on their way. And, and it really all comes from that, that, you know, getting passed over when he didn't get that chance. He says, no, I am never going to let that happen again. I'm going to do whatever I can to promote coaching. And he's done a tremendous job in pro- promoting diversity coaching specifically. His legacy is, is really uh, in the coaches that he left behind and that he kind of, kind of, uh, you know, nurtured along the way. It's a fantastic story. When you were in New York, Bob, when did you know that, that Coach Lynn had what it took to be a head coach in this league? I don't think we did. I don't think we could tell when he was a running backs coach with Rex Ryan. Now, Rex was very, very complimentary about Anthony Lynn over the years. And, um, he he kind of, you know, he had that that it factor about him. Very, very calm guy. Players loved him. And then, you know, he got a chance in Buffalo 
um, as the interim. But I, I don't know that there was ever that really aha moment uh, with Anthony Lynn when he was with the Jets anyway. Um, I think it happened more with the Bills. But people who were with him all knew that the guy had the right stuff and the guy could handle it. Of course, the Super Bowl on Sunday, the Chargers played both of these teams, Bob. And we talk about this tree. Sean McVay, his, his grandfather, was kind of the co-architect of those 49ers teams with Bill Walsh. And then, of course, we, we got Bill Belichick on the other side, and we all know the success that he had with Bill Parcells in New York. A uh, First glance at this matchup, what do you see? I know you're in Atlanta right now. As a matter of fact, Bob, I just saw you at the, the Roger Goodell State of the League press conference asking a question. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of questions about what happened in that NFC Championship game. Uh, between the, the Saints and the Rams, uh, specifically about that non-call uh, late in the game. But, you know, this is an intriguing matchup. I think the minds of both of those coaches are really going to be a determining factor in, in what happens in this game. And, I, you know, a lot of people are saying the Patriots just can't lose. They just have that, that thing going. They got the momentum. But I'm, I, I'm not going to sell Sean McVay short because I think there's a lot of stuff inside his head um, that is going to be difficult for the Patriots to handle specifically what he does on the offensive side of the ball. Guts and Genius is the book, the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the NFL in the 80s. It's a must-read. It's a must-listen if you're a football fan, if you're a Chargers fan. There's a lot of great nuggets in there. I can't recommend it enough. Bob, I know how busy you are during Super Bowl week. I really appreciate you spending some time with us today. for having me. always love chatting about, about that subject, and it's really uh, near and dear to my heart, and I appreciate you having me on. And that's going to do it. My thanks to Bob Glober and Rob Rang for joining me. And of course, thanks to you all for listening. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, be sure to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Please help spread the word. Enjoy Super Bowl Sunday, and until next Thursday, I'm Chris Harey.